All right. Good morning. Welcome to Redemption Church. I'm glad to see y'all. How's it going? Hope you guys got to shake a few hands and see everybody. Hey, Jamie. Yeah, that's great. Uh, It's good to see everybody this morning. Uh, If you're new, if this is your first time coming, we're glad you're here. Um, I hope you enjoy today. I hope you have a good time to meet some new people. I would encourage you to stop at our table here in the hallway. Uh, It's what we call guest services. Sometimes my voice does that. I'm sorry. But um, so, yeah, that's our guest services table. You can find out a little more information about us. Sundays are fun, but um, we do more than that. We, we meet during the week in missional communities where uh, we get to have dinner together sometimes or talk and discuss this and that, maybe work through a book. Uh, it's good times. It's a good way to get to know each other and really plug in. There's probably one in your area at a convenient time that you can go to it. So stop by there and check it out when you, when you get out of here. Um, well, it's August 3rd, and so we're starting something new just for August, and I get to kick it off. By the way, I'm Ben, if you don't know me. I'm not the, the normal speaking pastor here. That's Jeremy. Uh, so you get me today. So if you don't like it, come back next week, because Jeremy will be speaking then. Um, but over the next few weeks in August, we're going to do a new series, and it's just going to be exploring uh, the role of Redemption Church in God's story. Okay? Um, I'm kind of here to kick that off. And if you've been around, you kind of know that usually when I get up to talk, I talk about... You really, I'll, I'll make it sound really good, but you know, you need to get in a missional community, you need to volunteer, you need to serve, things like that. So you probably think, okay, we're talking about our role of Redemption Church and God's story. Here we go. Right? Well, you, you're missing it. See, I'm kicking it off. I'm not talking about that today. I want us to talk. Um, I guess my hope, my hope from today's message is this: is that we'll be able to identify our individual, personal roles in the story of God. Um, and I don't, I don't want us to miss it as we go forward. I don't want us to get ahead of ourselves and, and start talking about how we can impact the citywide story and the, and the global story of God. I want us to just take a moment this week and think about how the story of God has impacted us each personally. And so I'm going to tell you a little bit about my story. I'm going to share with you from Habakkuk, and we're going to explore that together. We use the word gospel around here a lot, uh, the gospel uh, as we define it, is the good news of the person and work of Jesus Christ. Um, I think that we we have to find out, we have to to know, have to have experienced, have to see that the good news of the person and work of Jesus Christ has actually had a personal significance in our story before we can go and impact the city or go and impact the globe. So that's why we're going to be here today. So... Uh, we're going to start with the personal stuff today, I guess. Uh, the big question I plan to ask, or I'm asking of myself, this is what I've been asking myself now for a few weeks, and what I'm asking of you is, what has Jesus done for you? Uh, if you claim to be a Christian, uh, I'm asking you, has the good news of Jesus Christ really changed your life? And can you say how? I was thinking through this message, and I came across a blog I don't know where, what, what it was. I don't know where it was. I, don't, I probably didn't read the whole thing because I don't have the attention span for that anymore. But there was a snippet at the beginning. I got that. I figured I got the whole gist of the thing. But basically on the blog, it just said, uh, it was talking about how most Christians, when asked, what has Jesus done for you, will pretty quickly and can quickly answer that he died for my sins. That's, a, that's true. That's, that's a valid answer, right? But that when a lot of Christians are pressed to answer how that has really changed their lives, they seem to struggle with defining it and saying exactly how 
to change your life. And I, I think that's understandable. I think we get that. I mean, if you're not the machine gun preacher, or I got to stop going that way. Um, if you're not the machine gun preacher or like uh, the big time uh, drug addict or drug dealer turned good, which are awesome stories, uh, then, then sometimes it's, it's hard to pick up on the subtleties in our own lives because we live day to day and we don't always think about the whole of where we've come from and what our story looks like. And so we don't really know where we would have gone or what path we were on. Maybe we did at the time, maybe we do know, but we have to really think about it. And, and so it can, be, it can be a struggle. So as I was preparing for today, I was asking myself, and I was just letting that question hang on me, is how has Jesus really changed my life? Um, so as I thought about this question, I, I was pretty quickly reminded of a workbook that I did just a few months ago, or end of last year. It's uh, Don Miller's storyline. I think I mentioned it one other time, actually. It's pretty neat. Um, but anyways, one of the things in the workbook uh, was I was instructed to make a timeline of my life. Okay? So it gave me like this line, and I had to go and, and talk about all the pivotal moments, the life-changing moments in my life. And I had to say, well, where, what were the negatives? Kind of rank it on a 1 to 10 scale of like just how negative it was. And then I'd put just how positive some of the positives were as well. And so you kind of go this way and that way, right? And then, and then the exercise asks you that at the end of making your timeline, you, make, you, know, you put all these life-changing, pivotal moments in your life on the timeline, and then take a step back from it. Pray and ponder and see if you can see a theme and try to identify a theme for your life. That was, that was the exercise. It was a good exercise. Well, as I spent some time reflecting on my life, trying to figure out what were the real pivotal moments in my life, what were the real life-changing moments in my life, you know, I thought about a boy, a little boy who, without a father, who lived with his grandma for most of his childhood. I don't know why I'm saying his like that. My, I thought about me as a child without a father who lived with my grandma for, for much of my childhood. Uh, I grew up in my teen years in a house full of girls. Um, my later teen years, my mom even had a couple more babies. One of them's here today, and she's like 25 or something. I don't know how old she is. She's like 19. She's here. Um, so it was just like girl, 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 girl. And the very last one my mom had, Timmy, he was a boy. And then I moved out of the house at 17. So I wasn't around much when he was around. Anyway, so I thought about that. Um, I thought about the, you know, the time when I accepted Christ into my heart. Obviously, it was behind, a, it was behind this old beat-up recliner in, a tra- in the trailer we lived in in Tolleson, Arizona. It was just like this yellow, raggedy trailer in a trailer park in the middle of the desert, basically. Tolleson, at that time, was just a place in the middle of the desert. Now it's part of Phoenix. But um, I remember my gra- you know, I lived with my grandma and my mom and whoever I was with, they did talk about Jesus a lot, you know, and I knew about Jesus. And, it, and I just decided it was time. I don't even know how old I was. I, I honestly don't know. I just remember going behind the chair, kneeling over like the air conditioning vent and praying that Jesus would come into my heart. And uh, that's, that's how I accepted Christ, right? So I remembered that. Uh, then I thought about how I, I came to Georgia when I was about 11 years old. My mom lived here, so I moved out here to live with, with her and my sisters. Um, and uh, I found myself as a teenager at the Hill Baptist Church, which is right on uh, Kingsway, down on the hill. That's where I met Claire. Who, who became a, a good friend and then became my girlfriend, and obviously she became my wife. Uh, that was when, what, when did I start going there? I think I was 16. 
and we were probably dating, or maybe I was 15 and we were dating when I was 16. Anyways, I started, and if I think about Claire and I think about our relationship, then I have to think about all the time we spent together and all the failures she's watched me go through. You know, um, I mentioned I moved out when I, I mentioned I moved out when I was 17. Well, that was a bad decision. It was a bad move. There was other circumstances, but a 17-year-old living on his own, working a job. I dropped out of school my senior year. I was, you know, I was a good student. I just couldn't wake up to my alarm clock, so I didn't want to. But uh, so she watched me drop out of high school. She watched me move out of my house. She watched me go in and out of work in those younger years, um, and in and out of school with college and and all that. And I thought about how how far we've come. I thought about how we've been blessed time and again, regardless of all those mistakes, and uh, and how we now have two babies, Grace Noel and Jack, and how amazing that is. Um, I remembered that when we were married and said we would, when we were married, we said we'd wait five years to have kids because we were I was 21, and we kind of wanted just a little time for ourselves. You know, we've been dating for like five years. So we just wanted some time to be married. So we wait for five years, and then I thought about, as I pondered this timeline, how that turned into 10 years uh, before we finally uh, met them. So anyways, I got it all down from all the way from my little kid all the way to when to now when I have two babies with my wife, Claire. And uh, as I step back from my timeline to pray and to ponder and to think about the theme that I might see, I noticed... Uh, well, I, had a, I made a thousand horrible mistakes. And just like any of the rest of us living in a broken world, a thousand bad things happened to me. And we could all tell horrible stories, right? Um, but I had so many more blessings. And when I looked at my timeline, there was only like two dips on my timeline, the negatives. And the rest was just climbing at the top. It was weird. It's not what I expected to see. Um, it just seemed like... And as I started putting it together, I just saw that through every low, there, there came a high. And I, I don't know if you're familiar with Jars of Clay. I'm just going to say it because I was listening to it in the car earlier this week. But there's this, you know, the song, he leads me through valleys of sadness to rivers of joy. I can see that on my timeline. You know, that he led me through these valleys to rivers of joy. And I, I, the blessings were so much bigger because, because of where I come, went through. Anyways, as I stepped back, I thought about these things. The theme came pretty easy to remember to me. And I thought about the day we got married and the scripture that was read over us, that we chose to have read over us. Um, and I thought about how often we'd had to bring it back up in our marriage, how often we'd return to it, and uh, how much it still means today. And that was the thing. It makes sense. So it's, it's Habakkuk 3:17 through 19. We're actually not going to start there yet. We're going to go to the first part of Habakkuk. Now, I don't know how you say Habakkuk, okay? Habakkuk. Habakkuk. Everybody says it different. I'm going to just say Habakkuk, because that's what I say. Um, but it's a very short book. It's three chapters in this particular paperback Bible, which if you don't have a Bible, you can pick one of these up in the back back there. It's for free. You can have it on us. If you don't like it, then we'll get you a different one. That's fine. But um, see, that's the whole book of Habakkuk right there. So it's a page and a half right there also. So you can read it while I'm talking right now if you want to. I'd rather you wait until you get home. And we'll just, you know, let me talk and do the thing. But, but if you really get bored, you can do that. It's a pretty short book. Um, now, Habakkuk is a minor prophet. Uh, 
Basically, that's all the little tiny prophets after the big prophets in the Old Testament. And so if you, if you don't know where that's at, it's between Nahum and Zephaniah, which is not very helpful either. So if you just find Ezekiel and then just start turning towards the back of the book, you'll get there pretty quickly. Um, but that's where we'll be as in Habakkuk this morning. So, All right, so Habakkuk was a prophet. He lived just before the fall of Assyria and the rise of Babylon. Uh, both kingdoms had been and would still be used to, to punish and to to discipline Israel and Judah. Uh, so it was a pretty rough time for when, Habakkuk left, when, when Habakkuk was alive and when he was doing his work. Um, we see Habakkuk starts right at the beginning with a complaint. Um, he begins asking the same questions that I think that, that I have possibly asked and maybe you ask as we go through our lows and our suffering. But this is what he says. It's Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 2 through 4. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help, and you will not hear me? Or cry to you violence, and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity? Why do, you, why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed, and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. Um... So he's asking these questions. You know, if you are who you say you are, God, uh, then why, why is there no justice? What, where's the justice in all the hurting and the brokenness and all the, the oppression that we're under right now? Why is our story so broken and painful? Why do the bad people who don't even recognize you as God prosper those prosper over those who do? Granted, the people who do know you haven't been perfect, but still, come on, they don't even recognize you know you for who you are. Um, and, and I kind of hear Habakkuk saying, look, the way I see it, this kind of justice isn't really justice at all. At all. It doesn't make any sense for me. Uh, it doesn't seem like the real thing. How does this work out? This isn't reflecting well on you, God. Right? That's just, that's just what I hear. Uh, to get to where we're going, you just have to bear with me. We're going to kind of hit most of this book really fast. But, um, so bear with me. But the, right after that, uh, God responds to Habakkuk, which is gracious in and of itself, that he would answer his complaints, right? I want us to notice that God's response to Habakkuk, uh, he doesn't get defensive, as if Habakkuk or you or me or Job could actually put God on trial, you know, and call him into defense. He doesn't get defensive. He immediately begins to remind Habakkuk of who God is, and that as a creature, Habakkuk can't see all that the Creator sees, and he graciously and mercifully begins to let, uh, let him in on a little bit of the bigger picture. All right? So we'll just pick up uh, and, and just Habakkuk 1.5. He says, Look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. I love that last line right there. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. So he kind of begins to bring him on the bigger picture and, and basically saying, you don't get the bigger picture. You can't get the bigger picture. I'm doing something bigger than you. If I told you, you wouldn't even believe it. You've got to trust me. And then uh, Habakkuk goes on to, to issue another complaint right here in, uh, in one twelve through two one. So I'm going to read that. This is our longest reading, okay? Uh, just bear with me and, and hear, listen up. So Habakkuk goes back to God. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. 
You who are pure of pure eye, purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look on wrong. Why do you idly look at traitors? Traitors, not trailers. <laughs> Why do you idly look at traitors and are silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them into his dragnet. So he rejoices and is glad. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet. For by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. I should probably tell you, there's a lot more to Habakkuk than we're going to cover today, like about the nations and how God is just in his dealing with the nations. But I want to talk about that complaint, and I want to talk about... I, don't, I just don't read that complaint as arrogant. I know that it can kind of come off as like a little bit arrogant and like a little bit like, really? You know, you're going to call God into question. You're upset with God, right? Um, but I don't take it as arrogant or rude. I, I take it as honest and sincere, um, kind of a pursuit to truly know the heart of God in the hurt. And I've been there. Have you been there? You know, like I, I've had these late nights in the last decade, Right? I've had these late nights where I, I sat in the middle of my stairway and I was just praying, like, I know who you are. I've heard and experienced you before. You're right in everything. I know that. You're good. You're loving. You're holy. But I feel like I'm losing everything. And I feel a lot of pain. And I feel a lot of suffering. And I'm having a, a hard time making my present jive with your everlasting. Right? Let's just, I'll just sit there. Help me. Save me. Give me some peace. I'm going to wait for the answer. That's what I hear Habakkuk when he says, I'm going, to, I'm going to stay on the watchtower, and I'm going to wait for an answer from you, God. I need an answer. I'm in hurt, and I'm having a hard time making this jive, but only you can answer me, so I'm going to wait for it. And I've been there for long hours, waiting in the silence, listening for days, weeks, months. You've probably been there yourself in the midst of suffering or pain or hurt, whatever it is. Even if it's light to some others, it was real to us, right? It was real to you, and you've been there. Well, God is gracious, and he answers Habakkuk. Again, he doesn't defend himself. He, he just immediately brings Habakkuk into God's story. He lets him in on what he's up to. And in Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 2 through 4, he says this, And the Lord answered me. Well, that's good news right there. Write the vision. Make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. I love that last part right there. It will surely, if it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. That's been good news for me. Then he goes on, and this is where he starts to tell the vision. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. But the righteous shall live by faith. Eugene Peterson, who he does the message, which is a paraphrase of the Bible, but he's written a lot of books, and he's a pastor. Um, he, did, he wrote in one of his books called A Long Obedience in the Same Direction, which is a great book. It's helped me immensely. I recommend it. But uh, 
that's just a it's a book of the Psalms of Ascent. Anyways, he defines righteousness in that in that book uh, as those who are are I'm sorry, righteousness. He defines righteousness as being in right relationship with the Father, right? Being the way it was supposed to be. Like, and and if you look at like some philosophy stuff too, that's how they define justice with righteous. That goes together. It's being in right relationship to the other people, to the other person, to the other side of the thing, right? And so that's how he defines it is. Uh, being in right relationship with our Father. So you could almost reread that, that part um, as, as I'm saying, like, have hope because have hope because of who's telling you this. If it seems slow, wait. It won't delay. And then he says, those who know me live by faith. So God lets Habakkuk in on more of the story about how in the end his name will be made great over the nations. He talks about this other... Uh, empires, idols, and, and you know, Habakkuk issues this complaint about them worshiping their nets and their drag nets because they brought the fish in. Uh, and he's saying, look, in the end, I'm going to be glorified over everything. I am glorified over everything. And so, not to worry about that. Some wooden, wooden man-made idol covered with silver that can't breathe, that doesn't have breath, will not be glorified over me. He just kind of brings him in and says, I'm still going where I always said I was going. I'm still doing what I always said I was doing. And my name's going to be made great among the nations. And then this, like, this third chapter almost doesn't fit because then Habakkuk just kind of breaks into a prayer. And it's like, a, it's like I got it. I got my answer. I get it. And it's like this beautiful prayer. Um, but you, Habakkuk writes this beautiful prayer... It's kind of like God's brought him in the story, reminded him of who he is and what he's always been doing, and kind of reaffirms that he's still going that way. And all of a sudden, Habakkuk like gets it and remembers where Israel came from, what they've already been through, how they've already seen God show up, and how obviously God is still showing up and still plans to show up. How God went out before them uh, when they were coming into the promised land, right? When all... He delivered them from Egypt. They wandered and wandered and wandered, and God went before them every step of the way until they were in the promised land. It's just how God had proved over and over again to be trustworthy, to be competent to save, and to fulfill his covenants that he's promised. Uh, we see that he's reminded of how God had said that he would save us, save Israel, and that all evidence in the past and even the present, through God's reminder here, still showed that he would still would and never intended not to. And so in Habakkuk 3, 13, we're almost done with the book. See, it wasn't that bad. He says, and this is part of that prayer, you went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. It recalls the promise in the garden after the fall that a savior would come, and crushed the head of the serpent. And he knew that promise. And Israel knew that promise. It's a promise that they had been, it had been growing this whole time in the story. But they looked at the timeline now as, as God graciously pointed, pointed it back, back to the timeline. He says, look, look, I promised that I would crush the head of the serpent. Look at everything that shows that I'm going that direction. You can't see everything that I see. I go before you and I go after you. But I'm going there. If it seems slow, wait. You can trust me. You know that God loves you because he went out for you. He went out for your salvation. 
So <clears throat> this just reminds me of this. Uh, a few months ago, we went to the beach, right at the beginning of summer, we went to the beach, and, uh, or end of spring. I don't know what a few months ago is. Anyways, we went to the beach, Myrtle Beach, and it's me and Claire in the front seat of our old Crown Victoria Grand Marquis. It's a pretty awesome ride. Anyways, kids are in the back. Um, actually, Claire was in the back with them, but so, the, you know, the car seats face backwards, and they're strapped in, and that's like a four, four and a half hour drive, especially if you have babies, and you've got to stop for a blowout. You know, because that happened. But anyways, <laughs> that happens every time you go that far for some reason. Anyways, so we're going to the beach, and the baby's in the back crying, and I was just up there by myself thinking, and, uh, and I really I just thought, and how much am I like them in my relationship with God? You know, how much am I like the crying babies in the back who don't know that their father's taken them to play at the beach? You know? The suffering that they're feeling is valid, right? They're strapped in pretty tight in their car seats. And that's not, that's probably not pleasant for four and a half hours. I don't even like my seatbelt, and I can kind of, you know, wiggle it around and stuff. But they, So they're strapped down. They're facing backwards, so they can't see where we're going. They can only see where we've been, right? And I just thought to myself, man, I'm just like them. Like I, I'm crying, legitimately suffering, as it may be. Because I can't see what my dad sees, and I can't really see fully where my dad's taken me. But what, as they grow up, obviously they're, they're babies, and it's, it's okay, right? But as they grow up, I, I mean, we hope that, that I've proved trustworthy to them, that I've proved that I love them, and that they can trust that whatever I'm doing with them, wherever I'm taking them, what, if I'm strapping them in and it's making them hurt, it's for their own good. It's for their safety, because I love them. Or... If they can't see where we're going because dad's driving down the highway, they know that wherever dad's taking them, it's going to be a good thing. Even if it's to the doctor to get stabbed in the leg with a needle. You know? Right? Here I see... Um, here I see Habakkuk changes tune in this verse. When you went out, you went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed, you crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. I, you hear Habakkuk change his tune. And I think it's the same thing that changes mine when I come to the Father with my complaints and my suffering. Right? Habakkuk sees that God loves Israel enough to go out and fight for them. Fight for them. To go before them. And we're about to start Deuteronomy, right? We're still doing that. I think so. Okay, so Deuteronomy is after this. And this is all through Deuteronomy. I love it. Like Moses just is constantly reminding the people of Israel, like, God loves you. Everything he's told you to do, he's doing it for your good always. He loves you, right? And this is a reminder all through uh, the Old Testament. And so Habakkuk sees as God brings him back to the story again and gives him a reminder that God loves him and God loves Israel and he's fought for him. He's gone before them before and he's going to keep going for before them. And as I hear God, hear my complaints, which I make, and that's the thing about us, we're going to be just like Habakkuk. We're going to come back with more and more. We're just going to keep doing this cycle. But we have a gracious and loving Father who answers us and brings us back into the bigger picture, right? As I read this, it just reminds me of the bigger picture. It gently reminds me of where we are going, and that he is competent and trustworthy to take us there. When I think about Habakkuk saying, you went out for the salvation of your people, 
I know that he's remembering that promise from the past that's about the future. I know that he's remembering all the times that God has done so to take them into the promised land and to keep them there. Right? But I think about us on the other side of the cross. And I think about when I say, you went out for the salvation of your people. I'm saying, I've seen God come down for his people and sacrifice himself. He went before us. So when I think about how he went out for my salvation and your salvation, when I think about how he went out for me, a fatherless boy, lost without a father's love, which is just a part of my story. I find that, and this is, this is my main point. This is what I want you to hear. I find that my father loves me. And that makes and will continue to make all the difference in my life. And that our Father loves you. And that is what will make all the difference in your life. We on the other side of the cross know even better than Habakkuk that God sent his son, the word made flesh, the ultimate expression of love for God and for us. To die for us. We read Habakkuk 3.13. We say we've seen it happen. We've seen everything that Habakkuk's seen now. We know the promise from the beginning. We know what Israel went through, and we saw the Savior come. This is really good news. This is the gospel. Jesus came. He was God going before us, and he's rescued us. He's made it possible for us to live in right relationship with God. He's made it possible for us to be righteous. He's made it possible for us to be the ones who have faith because we know who our Father is and we know what He's done for us. So I look back on my timeline, on my story, and I remembered our wedding day, and I remembered Habakkuk 3, 17 through 19, and how we wrote that over our, our wedding, and we've returned to it often. And I pondered the theme of my life. And my theme came pretty easily once I stepped back and looked. It said three parts. God is with me. God is doing a good work. And he can, he can be trusted with my life. When God is with me, he's doing a good work that I wouldn't understand if he told me. Just like Habakkuk. Just like he told Habakkuk. And he loves me perfectly and can be trusted as he's proven. And I can live by faith because of it. So this is my story. I once was fatherless. That's a Charlie Hall song and a scripture. And that, you know, but I once was fatherless. I felt lost without hope. But I found our father. And he loves me. And it's made all the difference in my life. He has blessed me to be a father now in which he continues to father me. Right? He's continually, I mean, I'm probably growing more now. I've probably grown closer to my father in the last two years than I did in 31 years before that, right? Um, now, obviously, I'm stealing the end of that statement from Robert Frost, right? Two roads diverge in the wood, and I chose the one less traveled. And that has made all the difference. And I just, for me, I, I just, when I hear that, I want us to remember, and when you hear that, I want us to think, that's good and great that there was two roads in the woods and that you went on one that was less traveled than the other one. But my father loves me, and he goes before me, and he goes after me, and that's made all the difference. That's what I remember when I hear those words, that's made all the difference, is that my father loves me, he goes before me and after me, and that makes all the difference. So without Jesus, I ask the question, 
Has he really changed my life? I say yes. He's really changed my life. Without Jesus, I wouldn't have any hope. I would just be... I know, man. I know all the failures I've made without him. You know, and I know that those things were just a spiral. (laughs) You know, you just spiral downward. But because I know my Father loves me and he goes before and after me, I know I have hope. I know peace. I know joy. And I lose it from time to time. Right? And I go back to him with my complaints. And then he brings me back to this again. So from here on out, and this is what we've been doing since we got married, I think, is that we've written this verse over our marriage. And we're going to continue to return to it. And my whole house will continue to return to it. And this is Habakkuk 3, 17 through 19. It says this. This is the end of his prayer. It's, a, it's to the choir master with stringed instruments. right? So I guess it's a song. We're not going to sing it today because we don't know it. Um, it says this. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off in the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on high places. Jesus is the God of my salvation. He has really changed my life. He put me in right relationship with the Father. How about you? Has he changed your life? Have you said that I know Jesus? What does it mean for you to know Jesus? Has he really changed your life? How? And what for? That's the homework I want to give you as we leave here and go to our missional communities and stuff through the week and then go into next week's talk with, uh, with Jeremy. And what we're going to do is we're going to talk about today is obviously this is my story. I don't know if you gathered that. Uh, then this is our story is next week, and then this is God's story. So it's kind of the gospel community mission, which is our purpose statement. It's, that's pretty neat, right? Anyways, it's all organized. But as we leave here today and ponder our story and how Jesus has had real significance on our story, I want you to take that home, really think through it, and come back next week, uh, and we're going to talk about our story and considering how our personal stories and how Jesus has had real significance in each of our lives actually really impacts each other and how it becomes our story. Before I'm done, if you're here and you're not a Christian, um, I have one hope, and that's that you just heard what I said today. I hope you heard the good news, the gospel that Christians say so often, the gospel. We throw that word around a lot around here. I just hope that, you, that it's really good news, that you really hear me. God is real. God really loves us. He went before us and went after, goes after us, so much so that he sent his son to die for us. I don't think he can do anything else to prove how much he loves you. I don't think there's, you don't need any more proof than that. But if you need more, I mean, it's just this whole story that proves it. And I hope, just like that, um, just as a, a father hopes to gain the trust of his children over time so that when things don't seem right and there's a little bit of suffering, they can trust that their dad loves them. I hope you hear that that's real. And I know that our fathers and our mothers and, and, and our children are all broken here on earth and that everything's messed up and, and we don't have a good image of that. This is the perfect image of a father. God really is like that. He really does love you. 
He really sent his son. He really died. And he really goes before you. My father loves me. And that makes all the difference. And he's our father. And he loves you too. I want you to hear that. And if you're a Christian, I want you to hear that. I wanted to remind you that our father loves you. I don't, that's a weighty word. I hope you take it and think about it and deal with it. I hope it's a difference for all of us. I hope it's a difference in each of our personal lives so that it can make a difference in each of our lives together so that we can make a difference in the global, the citywide and the global story of God.